0: And now America's number one show on pop culture and politics this is the Michael Medved show
1: and another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth it is a great nation that is about to become we are told again and again and again and again it's about to become a majority minority nation what the heck does that mean that means that white people so identified will no longer represent the American majority. But what's wrong with that assumption? Why is it not either a disaster or a triumph necessarily for the United States of America? It's because these categories, black and white and Hispanic and Asian, are ridiculous. They are, as a piece uh, says that uh, is fascinating reading, idiotic. And we know that partially because of what George Will called perhaps the most consequential American book of 2022. It's a new book that I'm very eager to read. It is called Classified. And no, this has nothing to do with uh, papers in President Biden's garage or President Trump's hotel. It's called Classified The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. The author. Is Professor David Bernstein, who has a uh, university professorship chair at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason uh, University, where he's been teaching for more than 25 years. Professor Bernstein, it's great to meet you on the phone and congratulations on a much needed book.
0: Likewise, and thank you very much, Michael.
1: Okay, first of all, uh, what what happened is this huge mistake that we have in America of assuming that we are divided into black white Asian Hispanic that didn't just happen and it hasn't always been the case that started because of a government decision in 1977
2: why so back in the 70s the federal government was busy trying to enforce civil rights laws in education, in employment, in other contexts, in banking, and they found that they couldn't really um, get the right data to do so because different federal agencies were defining the groups that they were tracking differently. So now Hispanic, Some agencies were only tracking Mexicans. Some called it Spanish-speaking households or people with Spanish surnames. Or Latinos, they all use different words with different connotations. So you could, it was comparing apples and oranges. So I'm not really, uh, in, in not really meaning to do anything more meaningful than this. Uh, the government got government bureaucrats got together and said, "Look, let's just figure out for these purposes of keeping these statistics, singular definitions for the different groups. Uh, figure out what terms we want to use, how to define." We're going to tell everybody, and they did tell everybody, they're not supposed to be scientific or sociological, they not supposed to be used for affirmative action or anything else. They're just for statistics keeping, uh, and they're good enough for those purposes. We're not going to bother getting experts. They really just did it in a very informal, haphazard way, trying to make things uniform, and then things just went crazy from there, basically.
1: Well, the one thing that I uh, struck me so forcefully reading your piece is how racist this is uh, because there's an assumption here that somehow if you are white and white can be everything from Greek to Norwegian to Polish uh, to uh, uh, South American it's basically based on skin color but there is no such thing as a, uh, a universal white culture is there in other words, oh, what is the sig- what's the significance of saying somebody is white?
2: You know, at the time in the seventies there were some people who made exactly that point. They said, Look, it doesn't make sense to just count everyone as white. There are all these subgroups and many of whom had faced discrimination themselves, Italians, Catholics and Jews, but they were sort of overridden. Uh and they wound up with this category that really goes for everywhere from Iceland to Turkey to Azerbaijan to Morocco, people who really have nothing in common in any way, but basically they don't fit into one of the minority categories. The minority categories themselves are, you know, the Asian category we include now is Asian American. If your parents came from Pakistan or from the Philippines, these are two cultures that have nothing in common. They don't even look alike, they don't have the same religion, same culture. And it is really a reflection that ultimately, when they were, like I said, sort of haphazardly making these classifications, uh, since they didn't really think about it too much, I just went back and reestablished in a lot of ways the racist classifications we had basically back in the 1920s for immigration or the 19th century for uh, inter- interracial marriage and whatnot.
1: And uh, the, the other thing about these classifications is particularly – uh, well, it's actually among every racial group. The, the rates of intermarriage are so very high. I believe it's one third fully of uh, so-called Asian Americans who marry so-called white people. And then what do you have? You're, you're, we're, aren't we uh, basically heading for a situation where there will be an overwhelming majority of Americans who count as mixed race?
2: I think we probably have a majority already, although a lot of people, if we include Hispanics, certainly, a lot of people who have one Mexican grandparent uh, don't normally think of themselves as Hispanic, but they're eligible to check the box. If they want but that's one of the really weird and arbitrary things. Back in the 70s when they made these classifications, they were really thinking in black white terms most of it, we, this was before the huge wave of immigration from Latin America and Asia so we mostly had black Americans and white Americans and they had been very segregated throughout history and they just assumed that that segregation would continue and would be one and that there would be different groups and they just stay that way and fortunately at the grassroots level we have incredible amount of mixing. it's it is like 33 percent for Asian but it's even higher for people who've been in the country for a generation or two. Uh, and we have a situation that where, at the grassroots level, we're creating a multiracial, multicultural American identity that's not based on skin color or race. And we have an elite, the corporations, the government, the universities, who are dedicated to trying to put everyone into a singular box and defend the status quo. Wow.
1: Uh, 1-800-955-1776 is our phone number. I'm speaking to Professor David Bernstein of uh, George Mason University Antonin Scalia Law School. Uh, Will some of this be fixed if the Supreme Court, which is hearing uh, decisions about the admissions policies of Harvard and University of North Carolina coming up, if as expected they basically say, hey, you just can't treat people differently based upon these arbitrary racial
2: categories? I think it will be an improvement uh if they do that but what I was really hardened by in listening to the arguments in the case was really for the first time in any of these affirmative action cases. A lot of the, several of the justices asked questions, not just whether racial preferences are constitutionally permitted, but also whether the classifications we're using make any sense. Justice Alito, for example, asked, why should someone from China and someone from Afghanistan be put into the same classification? And I think, I'm hoping that that continues, and the court will not just say you can't use these classifications uh, for preference purposes, but the classifications themselves are entirely arbitrary and you shouldn't be classifying people to begin with unless number one you have a really really compelling interest which is a legal standard uh, for race generally in doing so and number two the classifications themselves make sense for what you're trying to accomplish
1: okay can you hang on for a few minutes more sure terrific uh, because what I want to get to with uh, professor David Bernstein of George Mason University he's the author of this new book classified uh, the untold story of racial classification in america there's something that has been hidden by this racial classification and something very very important about the black population in america and this is the day after the martin luther king holiday but it's something that almost nobody knows and it's incredibly important Uh, we will get to that and uh, more with uh, Professor David Bernstein. What do the classifications get wrong, and 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 just clearly wrong uh, about people with the one drop of blood theory? That and more coming up on the Medved Show.
2: You're listening to the Mighty Michael Medved Show. <laughs> hey!
1: And on The Michael Medved Show, the book is called Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. The whole term racial classification uh, should make people uncomfortable because the idea of classifying people for different treatment based upon their racial background. uh, I was talking uh, with Professor uh, David Bernstein who uh, wrote this book, he teaches constitutional law evidence and products liability at George Mason uh, University Law School in uh, Arlington, Virginia. And uh, I I, I mentioned before the break that there was a stunning figure about black Americans, which has the great virtue of actually being true, is that 20% of black people in America that's one out of five are either immigrants to this country themselves or children of immigrants which means almost surely uh, well in many cases they were never enslaved doesn't doesn't this complicate any plan like the one that was announced uh, yesterday in San Francisco for uh, reparations based on skin color
2: it surely does, and you know. It gets even more complicated because, well, first of all, not only were uh, many of the African immigrants and their descendants uh, not historically enslaved—at least their ancestors weren't historically enslaved—some of them were the slavers, right? These slaves didn't appear magically in the ports of, our, of Western Africa; they were captured by uh, slavers uh, who were Africans themselves. So, to the extent some of these folks are descended from uh... elite uh... members of society their ancestors were likely uh, the other side of things uh... but it also gets more complicated because as i'm sure most listeners are aware uh, black people in the United States are not 100% African. Many have some Native American blood, a fair amount of white ancestry. And there, of course, we, because we're still sort of stuck in the one drop rule situation, we still consider people like Kamala Harris or Barack Obama to be uh, just black, but in fact, they're mixed race. And we have, you know, the people who tend to be in the best position to for example get affirmative action programs tend to be uh, these upwardly mobile immigrants and people who have one white parent or one white grandparent and they're getting a very large percentage a wildly disproportionate percentage of the admission slots of business contracts and so forth so again you know if you're going to have racial classifications they should be at least aimed at doing what they're what they're meant to do and if we're just saying if we're saying that primarily, look, we have this history of slavery and Jim Crow, people have been surrogated, they're stuck in these uh, surrogated inter- inter- city school districts uh, with high rates of poverty, those are the people we should be focused on helping, and instead we're going by skin color and ancestry, uh, racial ancestry, and we're helping people who are, uh, have potentially a majority of white ancestry but have enough black ancestry to be called black or even more likely people who are recent immigrants and their children.
1: This, uh, by the way, yesterday on the Dr. Dr. King holiday, we spoke to Ben Jealous, who uh, is a former head nationally of the NAACP, and he's also a cousin, he's a blood relative of Robert E. Lee, uh, because his father was from an old Southern slave-owning family, and his wife is mixed race, and yet uh, ben has that one-drop idea. Now, of course, that makes you think of Nazis who counted you as Jewish if you had one-eighth Jewish ancestry. Uh, what? How did we get stuck with that in the United States, that if somebody is even one small portion um, related to someone of uh, who once spoke Spanish, uh, that they can count as... Uh, as a minority, or again, people like uh, like Ben Jealous. Now, I ch- he ch- he cannot affiliate any way he chooses to, and he chooses to identify as black. But uh, isn't this a strange thing to be looking at bloodlines so closely?
2: Well, the way I, as I understand it, is I explain in the book. Really, we have to go back to the 1950s. That's when the federal government, for the first time, started imposing obligations on government contractors like defense companies not to discriminate. And they asked them to fill out a form saying, We don't discriminate. And by the way, uh, we'll list what minority employees we have to prove we're not discriminating. Now, back in the '50s, unlike today, no one ever asked anybody to check a box. It was considered at best rude to ask someone their race or ethnicity or religion, and at worst, it was illegal in many states to ask because it was seen as discriminatory. So, if you're a government contractor and the government wants you to say like who we have of different minority groups, you can't really. You don't know who's Catholic or who's Jewish or who's Italian necessarily, but you can look around and you know, say, "This person looks." Black. This person looks Mexican. This person looks what they in those days they would say Oriental, Asian. Uh, so those became the categories that the civil rights agencies focused on, not because there was any real rationale to it, just because it was for bureaucratic convenience. The, it was only the visible minorities who we could see once those classifications morphed into self-identification and we had the same black, Hispanic, Asian, Native American categories, well, now we're not looking anymore. Anyone could put it down based on if they fit the definition. So, black is defined as anyone uh, who is descended from one of the black races of Africa. Hispanic is defined as anyone who is of Hispanic origin. That doesn't say there's any limit. that It has to be one parent or one grandparent. It could be anything. So, as long as you identify that way, uh, that's fine. Now, back in the 70s, it may very well have been that there were such social disadvantages to claiming minority status that people wouldn't do so lightly, so there wasn't really a, a concern. But now we have what I call identity entrepreneurs, people who may be socially white, may look European, and other people may think of them as being white, but when it comes time to apply for college or for a government loan or whatever, they check the minority box because they do have some vague minority ancestry.
1: Uh, what about the idea of the white race and white privilege? Uh, are you as discomforted by the term white privilege as I am?
2: Look, um, I think, I think, I think. On the one hand, there's no question that in some situations uh, in life, you're better off in America. Like if a cop stops you, I'd rather be a white person than a black person. Just on the average, doesn't mean every cop is racist, but. <laughs> But but the idea that this overwhelms everything else about people is what I really object to. People have all sorts of privilege. You have I have the privilege. I had the privilege of growing up with two loving, uh, caring parents, which a lot of people don't have. Some people have the privilege of being born beautiful. Some people have the privilege of being born brilliant. Some people have the privilege of being born with natural athletic talent and so forth. And it turns out if you look at the statistics, all the groups that we talk about have extremely wide variations of subgroups within them, showing that skin color and race isn't the most important thing. So Greek Americans, for example, who are white, uh, by official decree, uh, have very high levels of education and income, but Appalachian whites, who are a very large population, mostly Scotch-Irish, are near the bottom of all statistics you might want to think of. We already mentioned black American descendants of slaves tend not to do so well overall, but African immigrants are doing quite well, especially ones from Nigeria. Uh, we think of Asians as being very successful uh, on average. That's true of Chinese and Indians and Koreans and Japanese, but we look at Cambodians and Burmese and Malaysians and Filipinos are not doing as well.
1: Uh, This is is all so fascinating and it's so important. Uh, David Bernstein, appreciate the conversation. The book classified. We'll be right back.
2: Medved show it's powerful and inspiring
1: and on the Michael Medved show Fox News is reporting that Sheila Jackson Lee the uh, Democratic representative uh, from Houston Texas has introduced a brand new sweeping bill to combat white supremacy there goes your racial classifications again how is that going to Combat white supremacy, which uh, no one should favor any more than they would favor black uh, supremacy or Asian supremacy or anything using the racial classifications we just were trashing for uh, a couple of segments. Okay. Uh, Her bill, and, and I haven't read it yet. It's a long bill apparently and a very sweeping bill because it wanted to... Um, make it a criminal offense to use certain forms of hate speech. After the uh, ill-fated attempt by the Biden administration to monitor American speech online, Jackson Lee introduced the uh, Leading Against White Supremacy Act. That's LAWSA, I guess, if you play it a leading, A-W-S, or laws leading against White Supremacy Laws um, Act of 2023 to assign criminal punishment for certain forms of hate speech. The bill's language in broad and could result in people facing criminal charges for sharing hateful content, including on social media. Uh, Do you think that uh, this bill is likely to pass the House of Representatives? I do not and i don't think it should become law uh or will uh speaking of hate speech there was a a, a little bit of a, an edge to some comments made by president trump he was he was on the air on one america's network uh, pardon me real america's voice and uh, president uh, trump was asked about Ron DeSantis, and uh, didn't seem entirely ready to embrace the governor of Florida. Listen, this clip ten.
0: I got him elected, pure and simple. He would have never, if I if I said I wasn't going to endorse you, uh, and I was close. You know, there was no reason to go wild about endorsing him. He was very nice in the sense of the uh, Mueller hoax. You know, he was one of about a hundred congressmen but- who for me and so you know I felt I felt I might as well endorse him because I didn't know Adam Putnam but uh, he was a three he was ready to drop out of the race it was all done Adam Putnam had that that nomination locked up you know the Republican nomination for governor of Florida he had it locked up it was done and when I uh, as Adam Putnam said to me when I met him a year later I didn't know him at all but I saw him He said it was like a nuclear bomb went off, a nuclear weapon went off when you endorsed him. The race was over. He said he didn't even spend his money. There was no way he could have beaten him after I endorsed him. So, you know, now I hear he might want to run against me. So we'll handle that the way I handle
1: things. Uh, The way he handles things. Um, Okay. Okay, but Adam Putnam was somebody who lost in the primary against uh, Governor DeSantis before he was Governor DeSantis. He was still Congressman DeSantis, and that was 2018 when he was first elected. And he, uh, President Trump, you'll note, did not talk about his really astonishing Florida victory where he won in what used to be a swing state by about 20 points. Uh, Trump also had uh, some things to say about some prominent, Evangelicals who he believes are guilty of disloyalty. Disloyalty to the faith? Well, disloyalty to a faith. Listen.
0: When you announce your candidacy, at least as it stands now, some of these prominent evangelical leaders who backed you last time, they're not yet willing to commit, like Robert Jeffress is not, some others. It seems like many of them are waiting to see how the field takes shape before backing anyone. What is your message to them? Well, I don't really care. Look, uh, that's a a sign of disloyalty. There's great disloyalty in the world of politics, and that's a sign of disloyalty because nobody, as you know, and you would know better than anybody because you do such a great job, nobody has ever done more for right to life than Donald Trump. There's nobody that's done more for the movement than I have, and that includes uh, the movement of evangelicals and Christians and the movement very much of right to life.
1: Okay, disloyalty? Disloyalty because they're not willing to endorse a candidate for president before they know who's running. I, I mean, it, it seems to me that's a, a little bit um, uh, presumptuous on the president's side of things. Uh, there is speaking about presumptuous. This is an unbelievable story, and I, I really I thought it was a parody but it's not. It's a piece posted by John Sexton in Hot Air. And he says, San Francisco's Board of Supervisors created the African-American Reparations Advisory Committee, ARAC, back in December of 2020. The committee is putting forth a draft proposal of recommendations which include uh, financial reparations for black residents including a lump sum payment of five million dollars that's not a mistake it's not an exaggeration it's five million bucks for each eligible person a calls for one-time lump sum respirations payments of five million to each eligible recipient this is the language of the proposal the amount could cover the economic and opportunity losses that black San Franciscans have endured collectively as the result of both intentional decisions and unintended harms perpetuated by city policy and in order to qualify for those uh, five million dollar lump sums an individual who has identified as black African-American on public documents for at least 10 years Uh, you must meet at least two criteria from the following list must have supporting documentation born in San Francisco between 1940 and 1996 and have proof of residency in San Francisco for at least 13 years or migrated to San Francisco between 1940 and 1996 and has proof of residency for at least 13 years Um, but this isn't all so you must be at least a uh, an adult who is identified as black for at least 10 years there's more the 5 million payment would go to those who qualify is just one of many of the proposals that are listed under the heading economic empowerment there's also a recommendation for supplementary income for black households that would last for 250 years now that means for you and your Children and your great-grandchildren and your great 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 they're not joking uh, 1.2 we will supplement african-american income of lower-income households to reflect the area median income annually for at least 250 years so they could extend this to give special status to black residents and black citizens for two and a half centuries The rationale is that racial disparities across all metrics have led to a significant racial wealth gap in the city of San Francisco. By elevating income to match uh, the area median income, black people can better afford housing and achieve a better quality of life. Uh, We will also finance a comprehensive debt forgiveness program that uh, clears all educational personal credit card and payday loans no they're serious rationale black households are more likely to hold costlier, riskier debt and are more likely to have outstanding student loan debt with this is combined with lower household incomes it can create an inescapable cycle of debt So they propose that the government of San Francisco will pay for it. They have, they see nothing about how this would be paid for. We will be right back.
0: The Michael Bedman Show. That is really extreme. Medvid show.
1: And uh, there are lots and lots of environmental issues that are of real concern to people, but there are very few environmental issues that hit big cities harder than the homeless encampments. And having people leaving their bodily wastes, their discarded injection needles, their trash, uh, their dead animals, you name it, uh, could be near where you live. Or where you're trying to run a business, and they had a an, a unique way in Austin that they tried at a Seven Eleven store to clear away the collection of campers who were making their uh, homes uh, right around the store. So they they had this idea, which again has been tried elsewhere. Somewhere it's been successful. <laughs> uh of playing opera music I'm, I'm assume they're playing uh opera music that isn't immediately hummable or likable uh, wagner would, would would do well um but yeah not the magic fire music or the ride of the valkyries uh, going into one of Wotan's uh long meditation something in any event they tried this in austin texas how'd it go
0: uh listen playing classical music loudly non-stop for almost two weeks well, someone sent us a tip to report it at KXAN.com to tell us about this 7-Eleven on Altorf a little east of I-35 the person who sent us the tip and the people leave uh, people living nearby and nearby tents believe that this is an effort to keep those experiencing homelessness away I mean nobody likes it I mean Nobody likes the music because it's going all night and you know I feel maybe they do it to try to run us off because you can hear it all night. It plays all night all day. Former city council candidate Daniela Silva and her campaign manager Jessica Cohen live in the area. They along with other neighbors are also annoyed with the music. I could hear the music before I even got to the 7-11. It's annoying this early in the morning. Not that I don't love classical music but This is just rude. Unfortunately, these kind of tactics are not new or original. Um, This specific tactic to keep people um, away from properties has been used in cities across the United States.
1: And, And around the world. And by the way, the people in Austin are doing it more intelligently because if you are talking about classical music in general, instrumental music people can get... like it's it's it really can be hummable and approachable and actually bring people closer the kind of uh, coloratura soprano opera music that they're playing imagine if you were hearing it uh literally 24 hours a day which they're trying i don't again what i do not get from this report is uh how successful they were in actually uh, getting a um, uh, getting a, a a break from some of the surrounding uh, campers uh, who may not be opera lovers. Uh, there's also speaking of opera lovers. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know how you connect this, but uh, I, I, George Santos could be an opera all his own. I mean, the rise and fall of George Santos. And uh, I suspect that, though he actually has a fairly high-pitched voice, he ought to be a baritone, uh, someone like that. But Speaker McCarthy had some encouraging words for the embattled new congressman from Long Island. Listen, clip nine.
0: I never know all about his resume or not, but I always had a few questions about it. What about the campaign pretending to be your chief of staff in his solicitation? You know, I didn't know about that. It happened, and I know um, they corrected, but I was not notified about that until uh, a later date. Did you
1: speak to him about it at
0: all? Yeah, I didn't know about it until a later date, though, unfortunately. Later date, though. Okay, uh,
1: and he has said now, he's taken the position uh, that he will do committee assignments for um, for George Santos and of course you want something where there's an area of expertise so I'm sure that uh, George Santos has aspirations to be on the ethics committee right and uh, and then there's the issue of gas stoves and the issue of gas stoves it seems to me is a strong Republican issue most people Uh, Including the 40% of Americans who have gas stoves do not want a new government program to take them out of your home. But uh, Joe Scarborough um, doesn't think it's uh, worthwhile defending your right to have stoves with gas burners in them and this is clip seven they lost the this. election okay. but yes. they
0: lost the election they right. lost the election they that got beaten in the senate we, we know that instead of kevin mccarthy's prediction of 60 house seats the they, red wave they just they didn't get the red wave you look at how every governor in biden's party i mean you have to go back to 1934 for a party to do as badly as the Republican party did here across the nation. And they keep trying this stuff. I'm I'm here as a friend telling them. You're no Grow friend. Grow the blank to These up. people. I Grow up. You need to start winning elections again. Grow up.
1: Okay, uh, but it's not a sign of immaturity to be concerned about invasions of people's freedom of choice to live their lives when there is not yet. And by the way, there, there are many Democrats who've even conceded this. Yeah, the, the, the government has better things to do and more important things in terms of curbing the possibilities of climate change than focusing on gas stoves. Uh, this and And the idea, by the way, that Republicans Ah uh, did worse than any party since 1934. What he's talking about is those situations where it's two years after a new president has taken power. The opposition party usually wins 28 seats. The Republicans won four seats, five seats, actually. I mean, if you count uh, uh, George Santos. Uh, meanwhile counting uh, a very long very epic movie that many people have been waiting for for 13 years and it's a movie that's already made two billion dollars by today Uh, what is it avatar the way of water listen
0: Now it's time for Medved's Entertainment Minute.
1: Thirteen years after the first Avatar film became a box office and critical champion, the saga continues with some members of the human race now joining the blue-skinned and long tailed nine long V in defending their extrasolar moon, Pandora, against the depredations of earthly colonizers and exploiters in Avatar The Way of Water. The Way of Water connects all things.
2: This is our home!
1: I need you with me. I need you to be strong. The artful and spectacular computer-generated animation, along with recreations of a lavish array of otherworldly beasts, make for a visual feast, but the melodramatic and two-dimensional plot is undermined by an intrusive and ear-splitting musical score based on themes by the late James Horner. It's rated PG-13 for endless scenes of pursuit and combat. Three stars for the visually stunning but emotionally inert Avatar The Way of Water. And on The Michael Medved Show, uh, next time uh, there's a big new study that shows that one of the main connections with the deaths of despair that are afflicting middle-aged white people across the country has to do with the decline of religious participation. Really? Uh, We'll talk about that study and what it says and indicates. And what if diversity trainings are doing more harm than good? They might even make things worse. And speaking of diversity, there's a plea in uh, USA Today. They ask, is it time to stop saying aloha and other culturally insensitive uh, words out of context? Uh, Mahalo. Thank you for that. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, there was a fellow, when you talk about culturally insensitive, who came to Mall of America in Minnesota, and uh, he was wearing a T-shirt that said, Jesus saves. And a security guard uh, demanded he, he take off the shirt. This is February and uh, not yet, it's January in Minnesota, that he take off the shirt or leave the mall. Uh, what about freedom of expression uh, we will get to that and to a stunning new poll that has trial heats for the presidency for 2024 uh, between Trump and Biden and between DeSantis and Biden. Who does how? We'll get to that and much more in This Greatest Nation on God's Green Earth.
0: Enough or-